0: Here's a few exciting scenes from tonight's episode of The Tom Gully Show. Patrick K. O'Donnell is a critically acclaimed author, and his last book is now out in paperback as a bestseller on Amazon. I think it's a bestseller on paperback, hardback, and audio at the same time. That's what we call the trifecta. Uh, He speaks on various subjects regarding elite military history, everywhere across the United States, and he'll be the keynote speaker, the grand opening of the American Revolutionary Museum in Yorktown. We spoke with him about Washington's Immortals, the untold story of an elite regiment who changed the course of the revolution when the hardcover version was released, and he's back because we'd hardly scratched the surface the last time he was here. Thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Tom, it's always a pleasure. I love coming back on your show.
0: Did I see something on your Facebook page about Patrick Stewart, the <laughs> acclaimed actor had weighed in on this.
1: Well, he lives in the area and, um, and it turns out he's very interested in, uh, you know, bringing attention to this, to the mass grave, which is a great thing.
0: Oh yeah. That's, and, and also, uh, a great thing that someone from the Star Trek universe is interested in it just because I love Star Trek. Um, but uh, no, I saw that, and I'm like, man, that is awesome, Patrick Stewart. Way to go!
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, it's a trifecta. It's um, all three of the books at the same time uh, are our bestsellers, and they're all in the top ten uh, history books in the world. And then they were the it was the number one book on the American Revolution. The softcover was the number one book for the American Revolution on Amazon worldwide.
0: Just in time for. Easter, Father's Day, Mother's Day—if your mom's into war—it
1: it was a multi-dimensional war. It was a civil war. What I mean by that is, you had uh, up to a third of Americans had sided with the Crown and were loyal Americans. In other words, loyalists that believed in uh, you know staying with Britain, and then you had patriots, and then you had a, a group of people that shifted in between depending on the ebb and flow of of victories and defeats uh, of the Continental Army. Every day he would record how many miles that they had to march and fight. And, you know, this is not... um, Many of these men were shoeless. They didn't have... They marched barefoot. They camped out in the open. They didn't have tents in most cases. So they're constantly battling the, the weather and the British Army. And what's amazing is that Kirkwood had over logged over 5000 miles. Wow. Barefoot and he had marched from the north all the way through the south and in like a two and a half two year period alone they marched uh, nearly 3 over 3000 or 4000 miles in the south. That's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, practically in, in uh, North and South Carolina. And it was rugged. This is where there's no roads, they you know they had to cross rivers and through mud. These were some very men, men of iron.
0: The other thing that, that your book brings to light that that I didn't think about, but your book made me think about, was medical treatment. Uh, after a disastrous engagement like Cam did, the wounded men didn't have much to look forward to, Even even broken bones like a compound fracture or... Or whatever uh due to the nature of the wounds and the medical treatment available to them
1: it was primitive and uh yeah there this is any a compound fracture could be life-threatening because there were no antibiotics and there was no sterilization of instruments men a lot of times died of um infection and uh you know the common if you were shot the common if it unless it was a sort of a grazing wound the common deal was to to amputate the whole limb
0: if you're lucky there's a physician if you're retreating and you're not lucky maybe there's some backwoods guy that's done a little you know a barber or something that's done done some of this stuff but a lot of times the men had to tend to their own wounds. And the, the description in your book of, of the way they would amputate the limbs is just, oh, my God, just reading it. You're like, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, they didn't. They, I mean, obviously, they had no antibiotics. They clearly couldn't have had any uh, anesthesia other than have a, mo- a little more rum, sir. I mean, uh, <laughs> right. just just basically having your limbs hacked off is, is uh, the best way to, to put it, I guess.
1: But Ferguson really didn't have a, a way with words. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, words do matter. Yes. And Ferguson told the over-the-mountain men, that he would lay waste to their lands with a sword and flame and and kill all of them. And these guys were like, yeah, right, we're not taking that. Uh And they weren't taking it at all. They weren't going to take me and just, you know, there's another component of this. There was was an effort to also disarm these people and, uh, you know, take their lands and all kinds of stuff. They weren't having it. And they mobilized getting back the pension thing. You'd go down to the local courthouse and swear under oath what you did and saw. And you'd had to convince people that, you were really, you were really there, and you know, they. they typically, would ask what who were the officers that you served around, what what regiments you're with, etc., where you were located, and what made these things great is I utilize these pension files to sort of tell the common soldier the story of the common soldier in the American Revolution. This is something that was really unique um, for Revolutionary War books. That's why Washington's Immortals. Is, real, is resonated with so many people. It's sort of the soldier's eye view of the American Revolution through the men of the Maryland line and the Delaware blues. And inside of those pension files, you find, you know, the typical things of, okay, I was at Camden or Cowpens. but sometimes you'd get the Lawrence Everhart quotes of, wow, I saw Washington crying. You know, I mean, it's, it's incredible stuff.
2: Due to some violent content, parental discretion is advised. <laughs> America, Mr. and Mr. North and South American, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. So sit back, buckle in, place your tray table in its upright locked position, and get ready for big time radio, friends. It's time for.
0: Good evening, it is Tuesday, March 28, 2017, episode 259. I'm Tom Gully, and tonight on The Tom Gully Show. Back when his Smash bestseller first appeared in hardcover, we were fortunate enough to talk with military historian and author Patrick K. O'Donnell about his book, Washington's Immortals. Well, he's back at it again to class up the joint and talk even more about the book and the men of the Maryland and Delaware regiments that George Washington referred to as his immortals. We'll talk about the southern campaigns of these men, and we'll learn more about the mystery where the men who saved Washington's army are buried and what Patrick Stewart, yes, Captain John Luke Picard, has to do with it all. We'll also hear about some pretty nasty medical practices yeah, it's uh, best selling author Patrick K. O'Donnell tonight on The Tom Gully Show.
2: For almost two centuries, Americans have enjoyed the valuable privileges of freedom. Now, freedom needs each American to dedicate himself to its preservation. We must not allow our liberties to be endangered by neglect of our duties as citizens. During this year of rededication, join with your fellow Americans in reaffirming the principles on which this country is founded and the safeguarding of those principles. Make it your business to see that federal, state, and local governments are conducted honestly. Help to maintain the good morale of your sons and daughters in the armed forces. Learn the facts about all candidates and issues. Then vote for the one you believe in. Make the most of every minute on your job. Produce as much as you can. And thus increase our military and economic strength. Work for better schools and a better community. Guard your American heritage of freedom. It needs you.
0: Patrick K. O'Donnell is a critically acclaimed author, and his last book is now out in paperback as a bestseller on amazon i think it's a bestseller on paperback hardback and audio at the same time that's what we call the trifecta uh he speaks on various subjects regarding elite military history everywhere across the united states and he'll be the keynote speaker at the grand opening of the american revolutionary museum in yorktown we spoke with him about washington's immortals the untold story of an elite regiment who changed the course of the revolution when the hardcover version was released, and he's back because we'd hardly scratched the surface the last time he was here. Thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Tom, it's always a pleasure. I love coming back on your show.
0: Well, that makes one of us. Um, (laughs) So before we get back to the story of the Immortals, what, if anything, has gone on regarding the search the burial ground of those patriots who were buried somewhere in Brooklyn who'd saved Washington's army. Uh, Has anything gone on since the last time we talked?
1: Well, I've been uh, sort of working behind the scenes to potentially organize an archaeological team to to work on that. So that's one of the things that I've been doing. And we've got one of the leading experts on, on the subject involved there along with civil war trust and um, there's a number of things that are uh, potentially happening Uh, late this year the uh, epa is gonna do a superfund cleanup of the guanus canal and this is where some of the men or most of the men from the so-called maryland 400 which were part of an epic stand that allowed the american army to escape during the Battle of Brooklyn uh, in the summer of 1776. But many of them are, as you mentioned, their they're, they're remains are they're, they're unknown. It's not known where the, the mass grave of these men is located. But there's a possibility it could be in the, the Guanas Canal or in and around that area. And a part of the cleanup is going to be an archaeological um, survey of the area and excavation. So it might uncover things. Um, So things are potentially out there and potentially um, they could pop open, break wide open in terms of uncovering one of the greatest uh, mysteries in American history.
0: Yeah. Yeah. These guys that that made it possible for Washington's army to not just be totally destroyed by the British, the Battle of Brooklyn. Did I see something on your Facebook page about Patrick Stewart, the (laughs) acclaimed actor, had weighed in on this?
1: Well, he lives in the area and, um, and it turns out he's very interested in, uh, you know, bringing attention to this, to the mass grave, which is a great thing.
0: Oh yeah. That's, and also, uh, a great thing that someone from the Star Trek universe is interested in it just because I love Star Trek. Um, but, uh, no, I saw that and I'm like, man, that is awesome. Patrick Stewart. Way to go. Um, Now, all three versions, audio, paperback, and hardback of Washington's Immortals are bestsellers on Amazon right now. Did I get that right in your introduction? Yeah.
1: As you mentioned, it's a trifecta. It's um, all three of the books at the same time uh, are are bestsellers, and they're all in the top 10 uh, history books in the world. And then they were the. It was the number one book on the American Revolution. The soft cover was the number one book for the American Revolution on Amazon worldwide.
0: Just in time for Easter, Father's Day, Mother's Day. If your mom's into war, um, okay. So when last there's week, some
1: amazing women in this book, by the
0: way. Oh yeah, that's one of the questions I have for you because the the composition of of armies back then was a little different than. Than maybe people have uh, come to believe from movies and such. But when we last left The Immortals, we really focused on the mystery in the Battle of Brooklyn. And a lot of people, for some reason, uh, think that the war ended in 1776, or the war, you know, they don't really have a good uh, knowledge of how long this war really lasted. As compared to World War One or World War Two or even the Civil War, but these men uh, that you're talking about fought until the early 1780s, correct? This
1: this is a seven year war that goes all the way to you know really 1783, and the uh, it's it's one of America's longest wars. It was America's longest war until Afghanistan showed up. And which, you know, as you know, is still going on. But it was the one of the longest and most difficult wars. It was also, it, it was a dimensional war. It was a civil war. What I mean by that is you had uh, up to a third of Americans had sided with the crown and were loyal Americans. In other words, loyalists that believed in, uh, you know, staying with Britain. And then you had Patriots, and then you had a, a group of people that shifted in between, depending on the ebb and flow of, of victories and defeats uh, of the Continental Army. And then within that, you had um, you know, in, insurgency, uh, in many cases, where a lot of what was going on was uh, guerrilla warfare. You had uh, militia groups that were loyal, as well as Patriot that fought in the countryside, and kept kind of people in line. Uh, In many cases, they protected the population that was, you know, whatever side that they were on. And they had a huge impact on the war. And most historians really don't look at... the the, Washington's Immortals is one of the first books to really look at the American Revolution as an insurgency, as well as the third component, which is a conventional war. And uh, these men fought, um, you know, not only in some cases as insurgents, but they also fought as conventional forces, and they, in many cases, fought uh, with conventional European tactics and, in some cases, in many cases, defeated the British army with their own tactics, but they also invented their own unique um, style of warfare, which is now part of the American, the American way of war. In many ways, was was fine-tuned and honed during the American Revolution. It began with the French and Indian War, where we learned uh, you know, hit-and-run tactics as well as special operations-type uh, 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 exercises and how to handle men and everything else, and then it was more refined in the American Revolution. And the, Washington's Immortals, which is a book about the Maryland and Delaware line, or troops, these were elite regiments that were part of Washington's Continental Army, Um, these were regulars, if you will, and they were some of the most elite troops in, in Washington's army. And they fought in practically every major battle during the revolution in the North and the South.
0: Well, and, and they really got seasoned during, you know, the fighting in the North and I mean, every major conflict they're there and they're playing a part but they go south because Washington needs a seasoned group of men to fortify Charleston, if I'm not mistaken. And these men, you know, like we said, had, had already faced fierce and strategically key combat of the war. And just the notion that they now have to travel f- over 4,000 miles to South Carolina, that in of itself is a story.
1: It is. Um one of the men in Washington's immortals uh, Robert Kirkwood Captain Robert Kirkwood was a member of the Delaware Blues or the Delaware line and Washington's immortals consisted of the Maryland regiments and then the regiment that was from Delaware and these guys were just intrepid and Kirkwood kept a daily diary based on his um his order or logbook and it's, it's it's astounding the um Every day he would record how many miles that they had to march and fight. And, you know, this is not, um, many of these men were shoeless. They didn't have, they marched barefoot. They camped out in the open. They didn't have tents in most cases. So they are constantly battling the, the weather and the British Army. And what's amazing is that Kirkwood had over, logged over 5,000 miles Wow! <laughs> barefoot. And he had marched from the north all the way through the south. And in like a two-year two period alone, they marched uh, nearly three over 3,000 or 4,000 miles in the south. That's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, practically in, a, in a North and South Carolina. And it was rugged. This is where there's no roads. They're, you know, they had to cross rivers and through mud. These were some very men, men of
0: iron. And, uh, and they uh, weren't exactly... Uh, being served a banquet for one of the things that struck me about your book was the scarcity of food and the quality of the food that these men subsisted on
1: food is a major um, food and forage and forage being um, what they need to feed the horses and that's kind of like in the 18th century it would be kind of like gasoline Um, but the, the amount of food was a major factor in, because there were very few farms in North Carolina to not only support the population, but then there's these massive armies that just get in, introduced the area, and they basically strip the area clean, uh, pick the area clean of cattle and livestock and, and crops. So the um, logistics is a major, you know, as Napoleon said, an army marches on its stomach, is a major factor in in the war in the South because there just isn't enough food. And, yeah, these guys are many times going hungry.
0: Well, yeah, and it's not like the North, which was at least a little more developed and the, the ports were a little more, you know, as a larger population centers, and th- there might be... Uh, a, a, a nobleman that could purchase a ship full of something to give the arm and there was nothing. I mean, uh, this, uh, Johan de Kalb it said that the, the only thing he ever drank was water and his, his meals consisted of, gosh, I looked at him and I'm like, forget the Acton's diet, go on the DeKalb diet. That, that, <laughs> that, that was, uh, you know, a water bread in the mornings, a little bit of beef and some soup and that's it, you know? Um, it, it, it,
1: yeah. Yeah. De is one of my favorite characters. He is a um, he's a, a basically a, a German that joins the the French army um, and fights, and he, he becomes a, a very experienced officer, and then comes to America to offer his services. And uh, this guy is kind of the Schwarzenegger of his day. He's in almost sixty or so years old, but he is he refuses to to ride alongside the army he marches along with his men and he has this kind of diet that can starve a gerbil i mean you know you <laughs> <Yeah. mentioned? laughs> yeah. it's a it, it's 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 incredible i mean this guy's uh, living on like a thousand calories a day at best and uh you know he's he's just you know muscular fit and uh the men love him and he's he's an incredible leader uh that you know, he's, he, he leads by example. I think that's the, the, the leadership is a major key element of Washington's Immortals. It's why these men are able to do sort of the impossible. It's because of the leadership of their officers, which they lead by example in most cases. And uh, the enlisted men that are also there, That uh, the NCOs and sergeants, etc., they lead by example, too. And they, they suffer along with the men.
0: Well, and he, I'll just jump ahead because I did want to talk about him, Uh, kind of a heroic figure in terms of the fact that, as you say, he would fight alongside the men at Camden. His horses shot out from underneath him, and he continues to fight, which, you know, traditionally, I guess just because of, of the way the military is today, a lot of times the higher commanding officers aren't necessarily with the frontline troops. They're they're doing strategy and and things of this nature, but but like you say, in this war, leadership is a big deal because those guys are there with you, kind of like the lieutenants and the captains were in World War II. And he has an exchange with Cornwallis. Uh, he's mortally wounded, uh, and I, I found I found that exchange just uh, really a little bit emblematic of of. The way officers treated each other in this particular war, uh, you know, you're right. I
1: mean, it's it's a sort of amazing. Most, you know, starting with World War One and then going forward, most officers of you know beyond the rank of captain or, or major were in the rear with the gear. Um, these guys in the 18th century were up front, leading their men, and that includes even. You know, the uh, General Cornwallis from the British Army uh, gets a bad rap from Yorktown. I mean, everybody knows about that. But the reality is this guy was an incredibly heroic and able um, battlefield commander that was up front with the troops in many cases. And and as the battle would ebb and flow, he would make himself available at at an inflection point and turn the tide. Uh, That was certainly the case uh, in a number of battles, including Camden which we're talking about now. And the Battle of Camden is August uh, 1780. And um, just a few months earlier, the, um, the port of Ch- Charlton is, is captured by Cornwallis and Henry Clinton. And it's one of the greatest losses of prisoners of war up until this, before the Civil, war, to the Civil War. There's almost 6,000 Americans that are, that are taken prisoner or killed. At, at Charleston, and the tide of the war is t- is completely changed. Charleston happens, and then what happ- What's next is the um, the American army rallies under General Horatio Gates, who is given way too much credit for the Battle of Saratoga, which took place that where a British army was was uh, basically annihilated in Saratoga. And comes down into the south to sort of save the situation from Charleston. And the Marylanders and Delaware troops with Robert Kirkwood are under the command of DeKalb, who is under the command of Gates. And they attack at Camden um, in the morning hours in the middle of the of August, and it's an absolute disaster. Yeah. It's one of the great defeats of an American army in history. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, we don't tend to, really focus in on the defeats that much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As Americans. Of
0: course, sure.
1: There's not it's pretty sad. There's not even a I mean, there's a private battlefield for Canada. There's not even a national battlefield. And uh, it's it's um it's it's something that's really worth preserving and, and, and knowing more about. But the American army under Gates is shattered and but the, the Marylanders fight very bravely and hard. And uh, on that field is DeKalb fighting in He's bayoneted several times, of six or seven times, I think, by British troops, and he's mortally wounded. And um, the British troops are, some of them are attempting to, to steal his his belongings. And Cornwallis comes over and says, that, you know, enough of that. And they exchange words. And <coughs> Cornwallis gives um, DeKalb his surgeon to see if he can kind of put him at a little bit of ease. And... Um, Decalutters some, you know, uh, some famous words. According to a legend, that he would rather, you know, this is he—he he was dying for liberty, basically. Uh,
0: the rights of man. Uh, yes. Yeah, and 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 Cornwallis tells him, you know, I'm sorry to see you, sir. You know, I'm. This is, by the way, don't hold me to this. Is not verbatim. But he says, I'm sorry to see you. Not that I'm not sorry you've been captured, but I'm sorry to see you in the state that you're in. In other words, I'm sorry that you're mortally wounded. And and uh, DeKalb tells him, you know, I am dying the way I would prefer to have died, which is on a field of battle fighting for the rights of men, which I I was wondering, is is he emblematic of the foreign officers that were deployed by the, the Continental Army or, or is it kind of a mixed bag like anything else? I mean, some of them kind of self-serving and imperious and were there to fight just because they were being paid or they're their country had ordered them to uh or or were there largely guys like dekalb that were there because they honestly believed in the cause
1: you definitely had a mixed bag of 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 people that were self extremely self-serving and then they were they were trying to they were vying for uh generals and general officer positions within the continental These or foreigners and, you know, these are, the, if in today's terms, they'd be listed as foreign fighters, okay? And, and uh, anyways, but th- this guy, most of these individuals were really, truly patriotic and really believed in what they, in the cause. And uh, they were fighting for what they believed in. And, I mean, they were extremely ardent. And what you find in Washington's Immortals is there's a, there's a core group of these men like DeKalb or, or I guess, or um, many of the officers, uh, Robert Kirkwood—they're the core that they, they just believe against all odds. They they believe in what they believe, and they are the men that hold the army together.
0: Well, uh, the Camden battle, you know, strikes me as as interesting because you know they've 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 gone on this huge march. Uh, the men two-thirds of them militia. They had never drilled together. They're very, very short on food, and they are expected to take on the British Army, the greatest army in the world at the time, in the dark. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's almost a recipe for disaster. And then there's a tactical error that's made right at the start involving the deployment of the the sharper troops, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, there's... And then there's even another little tactical development mm. that occurs right before that where these men are served molasses.
0: Mm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, um, that's not a very good idea when guys don't really eat anything. And what happens is these guys basically have the runs right before the battle. I mean, they're diarrhea. Yeah. And and they're, they're not really obviously not able to, to fight as effectively. So, yeah, there, there's a night. I mean, they, the, the army's kind of, what happens is they both kind of, um, they're marching and they run into each other in the dark and wasn't what was planned. And uh, then things sort of unfold from there. And the worst part about it is that Gates puts his worst troops, the militia, up against on the, I believe it's the right flank, against the best troops in the British army, and that's another recipe for disaster, where you know you're you're going, you're putting your worst against your the other the opponent's best, and what happens is, they shatter, an entire wing of the uh, American army, and the battle just goes downhill from there.
0: Well, and the your book has a line in it that I always thought was like Hollywood. I never thought it was. I mean, maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm just dumb. But don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes. You always hear in movies and something. And I thought, is that just a Hollywood thing? And no, actually, it. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Don't shoot until you can. See, they're close enough that you can see the whites of their eyes. Uh, but the r- largely inexperienced North Carolina regiments and whatnot didn't do that when the british attacked they 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 shot far far too soon and and the british just just charged straight on through
1: yeah the um don't shoot until the whites of their eyes is a true statement uh, some say that it might have occurred at the battle of bunker hill first and uh, then it, it sort of comes through in many of these other battles And, yeah, as you mentioned, some of these militiamen actually did fire some shots and the others just bailed out, and that caused uh, chaos because the the Marylanders and the Delaware line guys, they were standing firm and, and doing well against the British until an entire wing of the army collapses and then they're in peril too. And what happens next is very similar to the Battle of Brooklyn where these men are now sort of holding the line uh, trying to allow the army to to, to escape in some cases uh, as it's collapsing, and they're they're then they're then um, subject to being um, annihilated as well, and they have to they have to run and run through swamps to to get away, and it's a giant uh, race. All the way up north to towards Charlotte, and one of the first people to make it there is the general of the army Horatio Gates, who flees on horseback as his men are are still in the field of battle, and he's making his way up to Charlotte as in a in one of the speed records for yeah. <laughs> for for on, on horseback. Yeah. Well, and I
0: find it I found it interesting that it's like you know they would they would flee twenty miles you know it wasn't just uh, we're going to go over to this tactical position here a few miles away and and everything's cool no they have to run, they have to go 20 miles um, the other thing that that your book brings to light that that i didn't think about but your book made me think about was medical treatment uh, after a disastrous engagement like cam did and the wounded men didn't have much to look forward to even even broken bones like a compound fracture or or whatever uh, due to the nature of the wounds and the medical treatment available to them it was primitive and
1: uh yeah there this is any a compound fracture could be life-threatening because there were no antibiotics and there was no sterilization of instruments men a lot of times died of um, infection. and uh, you know the common if you were shot, the common if it unless it was a sort of a grazing wound, the common deal was to to amputate the whole limb. and uh, a lot of men died from from gangrene and other things. and uh, yeah, this is just it was primitive stuff and uh, brutal the uh, the one thing that was kind of interesting now is, that a lot of times they would let the the physicians of both armies um, they would stay at the battle on the battlefield and tend both sides. In in most cases, the British were were gentlemanly enough to let that guy go after he tended the wounded, and I think that that was kind of a a cool um, a cool thing that they sort of had that that level of humanity. Um, Even even though the war itself was it's not what people think it wasn't just a bunch of guys lining up I mean, this is really brutal type of warfare where most of the wounds were by bayonet yeah, I mean and You get hit with that and it's it's practically life you're you're finished yeah i mean it's 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 gonna leave a mortal wound
0: yeah gaping mortal wounds or run you through as they say they just go straight through you and and hope that you didn't hit a, a vital body part if you're lucky there's a physician if you're retreating and you're not lucky, maybe there's some backwoods guy that's done a little, you know, a barber or something that's done, done some of this stuff. But a lot of times the men had to tend to their own wounds and the, the description in your book of, of the way they would amputate the limbs. It's just, oh my God! Just reading it, you're like, oh no, 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 no. I mean, they didn't. I mean, obviously, they had no antibiotics. They clearly couldn't have had any anesthesia other than have a more, a little more rum, sir. I mean, Just, just basically having your limbs hacked off is is the best way to to put it, I guess. Right. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, and and then you introduce things like the artillery, and how devastating that could be. Where they fired, uh, in some cases, what's known as canister, which is they would have uh, tin cans effectively filled with lead balls that would spray out like a giant shotgun or cannonballs themselves. You know, were, ha- were traveling at such a high velocity of speed, they just it just blows through lines of men. Even if it was like on the ground and rolling, it yeah. would take off your foot or your leg.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was, no, it's no, really. They they it's, would bounce and just right. cause t- utter chaos. I, I found it interesting. They they referred to uh, you know shot from the gun uh, as grape. He went down under a hail of grape. I'm like, that's 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 a that's a flowery way of putting it, I guess. Um, right. Now, the British did not consider loyalists, in other words, Americans that were still loyal to the, the British flag, uh, much of an advantage, and they didn't use them to their advantage because they weren't much of an advantage, really. They, they tended to know they were surrounded by uh, continental supporters or at least indifferent people. There was nothing much in it uh, for them. In North Carolina, however... A call for loyalist support didn't get much support, but it did. And I love the way your book puts this. It pissed off a group of Americans known as the Overmountain Men. Um, can you talk about that? I know you recently wrote a, an outstanding article about it uh, because it is one of the key moments in the South that demonstrated that the Americans could defeat the British Army. <sighs>
1: I think this is one of my favorite stories in the book. It's it's called the Battle of Kings Mountain, and the Over the Mountain Men were were pivotal in in the victory of Kings Mountain. They, these are um, Scots Irish, Welsh, and some Germans immigrants that that settled on the in now what's now known as um, Eastern Tennessee during the American Revolution. It was never a, it wasn't a state. But this was on the other side of what was known as the Royal Proclamation Line in the Appalachian Mountains, which was sort of a legal, ter- it was a legal, ter- a legal territory. It was Indian land, and the, the colonists were forbidden from, from settling there. But these, these men and women refused to, to listen to that, and they illegally squatted there, and they set, set up their own settlements and their own laws. And um, they were just some of the, the toughest Americans uh, at the time. They're incredible Credible uh, Americans. This, what they had to endure. I mean, this is American individualism. Um, this, you know, sort of rugged individualism, is personified by this group of Americans. And they, they were told by a British officer by the name of Ferguson, who early, earlier, before the war, had developed a breech-loading rifle. And, and interestingly enough, he was. He was an expert shot. He actually had Washington in his sights, the battle of Brandywine Creek, but refused to shoot him because he wasn't, he wasn't, Washington was Washington wasn't armed at the time, and he had his back towards Ferguson, so he had a little bit of honor there. Um, you know, had he taken that shot, you know, the, the war would have probably taken a different course, maybe. Um, but Ferguson really didn't have a... Uh, Away with words (laughs) And you know words do matter Yes And Ferguson told the over the mountain men That he would lay waste to their lands With a sword and flame And and kill all all of them And these guys were like yeah right We're not taking that Uh And they weren't taking it at all They weren't going to take me and You know there's another component of this There was was an effort to also disarm these people And uh, you know take their lands And all kinds of stuff They weren't having it And they mobilized uh, and they made their way towards a place called Kings Mountain, which is on the border of North and South Carolina. And Ferguson had mobilized um, over a thousand loyalists from North Carolina, or in South Carolina, I should say. And their their job was going to be to act as kind of like the left wing of Cornwallis's army, invasion army, as they went up towards North Carolina. And this is one of the rare times when Cornwallis really made a huge mistake. He should have kept those loyal troops under his command and with uh, a core group of British soldiers. Because they're sort of marching off on the left, and his main army is going kind of towards the center, up towards North Carolina, and they camp out towards uh, uh, they camp out on this mountaintop called King's Mountain and the -the over-the-mountain men know where they're at, and they surround King's Mountain and envelop it they're they're outnumbered but they still don't they don't care they 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 (laughs) surround the mountain and then they weave through the rocks and and kind of fallen trees on king's mountain and they're starting to shoot at the the guys on top of king's mountain and ferguson is is on a horseback is rallying his troops and he makes a great mistake of 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 lining them up kind of in european style like lines of fortification four formations i should say rather than having them behind logs and trees where they should be. right, And um, they repulse the over-the-mountain men several times. But eventually the over-the-mountain men uh, are able to surge forward, and they slay many, many uh, members of this loyalist group that are under the command of Ferguson and they kill Ferguson. And one of the things I thought was kind of interesting is Ferguson had this beautiful redhead, <laughs> that he brought into was with him I mean a lot of times this is the eighteenth century and armies traveled with their wives and you know, with mistresses, etc right known as camp followers uh, and she's she's she she was uh, slain with him and uh, they they overrun the the top of king's mountain and they they kill um over a hundred of loyalists and they they also mortally they, they wound many many others and then they take a number of them prisoner a great number of them prisoner but Ferguson is slain with his mistress and his grave to this day is on top of Kings Mountain along with along with the mistress
0: wow that's uh, that's that's interesting but but it gets to a question I'll ask you in a second here but This battle was really instrumental in showing, you know, all the rest of the continentals that, yeah, we can beat these guys. I mean, they're they're not in, uh, you know, uh, maybe up north where some of the other larger stage battles had occurred. They, They were infused with that confidence. But in the south, things had not gone well at all for the Continental Army.
1: Yeah. I mean, for really, really for years, there hadn't been a really a sizable American victory during the American Revolution. And it just things were going just very badly for the uh, for the cause, and the you know the defeat at Charleston, the dis, the shellacking, if you will, at uh, at Camden, uh, um, along with some other smaller dis- disasters, um, it just looked like things were were completely nearly over for the Revolution. There was there was talk on the the part of the French who were critical to our funding as well as providing troops to the the American Revolution. They were thinking about pulling out. Even, uh, it's interesting, even Russia was trying to meddle in in our war and potentially, along with Austria, negotiate a peace settlement. Um, And things were going just so badly until King's Mountain. And it shows the the country that that we can fight and we can defeat them. And the, the string of British... Victories is over, and it's, the, it's sort of a chain of defeats that, uh, that, that bring about the end of the British in, in the south. Uh, it, it starts at King's Mountain, and it goes through what follows next is a, thing, a battle called Cowpens, and then later a place called Guilford Courthouse, which ultimately leads Cornwallis to move towards Yorktown.
0: Well the the other thing about it is if you consider in your article and the book both describe these men the over the mountain men so well these raw powerful you know dudes that have been living out in the hard scramble kind of hollers and hills of eastern tennessee and if you if you have been to this place even to this day uh, I would suggest that if you tried to disarm those individuals, even to this day, you you would meet with largely the same uh, the same attitude. You know, the, these are, are I think f- fiercely independent people.
1: Some of the greatest Americans, and this is American DNA at its finest. This is what I. This is one of the quotes that I that we dug up on on the Over the Mountain men. They appeared like so many devils from the infernal regions, so full of. Ex- were they as they darted like enraged mountains up the mountain they were the most powerful looking men i ever beheld not overburdened with fat but tall raw bone and sinewy with long matted head hair such men as were never seen before in the carolinas and then this goes on we were formidable our equals were scarce and our superiors hard to find I mean, these guys were just off awesome.
0: yeah they were uh, they were not to be, <laughs> be trifled with um, the, the nature of warfare, as you mentioned, um, uh, Ferguson had his mistress with him. And the nature of warfare at this time, you know, they, they, the officers would bring their own food. They would leave money uh, back with uh, their families in, in case they were captured uh, because they were expected to pay for their um, quarters and such if they were captured. Uh, there's a lot of it's, I don't want to call them niceties because it is warfare but there was a lot of customs during during this period of warfare that were very very um, almost genteel very gentlemanly you mentioned the physicians on the battlefield but there were a lot of things like that where your mistress would come or your wife would come with you and uh, it was not seen as at all unusual <laughs> Yes, uh, I would say
1: that, especially with the, um, in terms of imprisonment, if you were captured and you had money, you could have a different sort of outcome. You could be paroled and live in a, um, you know, whatever you could afford in captivity. And you were expected to keep your oath, and and they did, for the most part. But for the vast majority of Americans that didn't have any money at all, I mean, these are people that, they oh, yeah. had. They're yeah. lucky if they had the clothes on their back. Right. They were subjected to some of the harshest possible treatment as a prisoner. war, you can imagine this is this is concentration camp time. These guys were thrown on on basically on 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 rotting hulks of ships, and they were starved to death for the yeah. most part. Yeah. In the low decks and didn't even see the light of day. And then many of them just died a you know horrendous death on these on these ships. Or your other option was. Guess what? You got a choice. You could either join the your buddies down in the the hull of the you know the of the British prison ship and and die a slow death or you can join the British army.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and you, you're given an option of changing sides and and many men did and that was uh you know I mean you were subject to a death sentence if you were captured but you know some, sometimes you could talk your way out of it and I have several men in the books that that, that Washington is Immortals that literally changed sides multiple times
0: yeah, <laughs> during the you? war. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the, the it's basic the, survival. The colonists did. I mean, you might as well. Uh, the officers, as we just mentioned, were accorded certain liberties after capture in these days. And there's an exchange between Everhart and Tarleton, that I, I mean, I laughed out loud when I read it uh, at Cowpens, uh, that Everhart is captured and he's talking to this guy about the outcome of the battle. Do you know what I'm referring to?
1: Yes, uh, this guy Lawrence Everhart is probably like one of the luckiest uh, British or American soldiers out there. He's a Marylander. That um, I love this guy's story. It's, it's awesome. He was, he was one of the few Marylanders that were. That was able to escape a place called uh, Fort Washington up in um, Manhattan, and the entire place got surrounded. But Lawrence Everhart found a rowboat, <laughs> and along <laughs> with a bunch of other uh, Marylanders, they rode across the the, the the Hudson and made their way to Fort Lee, and they were they were able to survive. In incidentally, in that in that in, in exchange, after they got across the river, he encountered Washington. And he saw Washington looking at the destruction of his men at Fort Washington through a spyglass. Right, right. And, uh, you know, he, he describes how he had tears in his eyes. And it was one of these, you know, moments in the book that just is really, uh, I mean, awesome. You know, you think of Washington kind of in terms of an oil painting.
0: And it's stoic, and, you know. Yeah.
1: And here he is, you know, showing, you know, his deep emotions for his men. But anyway, it's kind of fast-forwarding. Lawrence Everhart then joins the, um, the the American Dragoons under William Washington, and these guys are mounted. Uh, and Washington is, I mean, Everhart is part, part of a sort of an advance group to find out where the the British are located. And what happens at the beginning of the Battle of Cowpens? he's captured um, by... by Banister Tarleton, who is the, who's got this British cavalry force and force of uh, uh, as well as soldiers and some cannon, going to go after the Continental Army, and yeah, it's incredible. Lawrence Everhart's capture, and he's like, yeah, there's this guy Tarleton, uh, you know, he's going to get he's going to get his he's going to get hammered, and you know, and he's sort of talking about Tarleton, and Tarleton just looks at him, and goes, "I am," I, <laughs> Tarleton. I, I, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. He says. He says I certainly hope Tarleton gets his rear end handed to him. And I, I don't. I'm Tarleton. Oh, you're the guy. I'm sorry. You're the. Can you imagine? You've been captured by this guy and you've just been uh, wishing the, the worst thoughts upon him. And it's uh, that must have been a, a hilarious moment. I mean, just, just to hear this guy talk and talk and talk. And it's like, hey, don't you know who you're talking to? I am Tarleton. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) now, as far as the, you know, the war continues on until uh, 1783. And the aftermath of the war, it was interesting to me. I mean, uh, we made a point of it in the the first talk that we had about Washington's mortals, but these guys weren't paid. And and when they were paid, it would be maybe an officer would give them some money. Uh for, for whatever reason, but that was few and far between. They they did everything on very, very little food, and of course, as you mentioned, they're they're living out in the elements. These guys actually, first of all, in order to get paid, you had to survive, which there was a huge mortality rate. Not not many of them did survive. And then you had to actually go back and it was almost like uh I don't know, uh, going to get escrow or something. There's a huge labyrinth of governmental procedures you had to go through, and you actually had to prove that you had served before they would let go with any money. They really didn't give a lot of money until 1818, and then later on during the Civil War, they, they did a little more, but, but not many of them were alive at that point.
1: It was before the Civil War, but yeah, there. This is a, this is a system where you were sort of doubted immediately, and um, whether or not you served, and it was incumbent upon you to prove it. And you, if you were lucky enough to survive the American Revolution, you apply for what was known as a pension, and uh, the pension was like half of your pay, for what you were paid during the war. In most cases, people weren't paid anything, um, or they got it late and. Or they, you know, it was even more uh, sinister. Is they would be paid, and then they would be expected to 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 clothe themselves,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and and that, you know, it would be like, okay, yeah, here's your. Your five hundred or your you know three hundred bucks, but hyperinflation had made it so that the the money was practically valueless, and you had to pay for your own uniforms or whatever Uh and equipment, and then you'd have to pay for in some cases your own food. (laughs) (laughs) And people were uh, you know obviously upset, and there was there's mutinies and things that occurred. But um, getting back to the pension thing, you'd go down to the local courthouse and swear under oath what you did and saw. And you'd had to convince people that you were really, you were really there. And, you know, they, they would typically ask ask who were the officers that you served around, what, what regiments you were with, etc., where you were located. And what made these things great is I utilize these pension files to sort of tell the common soldier, the story of the common soldier in the American Revolution. This is something that is really unique. Um, for revolutionary war books, that's why Washington's Immortals is real is resonated with so many people. It's sort of the soldier's eye view of the American Revolution through the men of the Maryland Line and the Delaware Blues. And inside of those pension files, you find you know the typical things of okay, I was at Camden or Cowpens, but sometimes you'd get the Lawrence Everhart quotes of Wow, I saw Washington crying. You know, I mean, it's it's incredible stuff that. Most historians have never utilized, and uh, that's what makes – there's literally hundreds of these anecdotes and, and pieces of pension files in Washington's Immortals uh, in the 54 pages of endnotes, uh, all primary sources prim- mainly uh, for the book.
0: Personal accounts that aren't you know, what we traditionally get from the Revolutionary War, which is that of officers – in in memoir fashion, these are these are the guys that actually did the fighting, telling their personal accounts. Uh, there used to be a TV show on called GI War Story, and it would have the the foot soldiers' version of World War II. And this is that for the Revolutionary War and stories that have previously been pretty much locked in a, a file somewhere uh, that nobody's nobody's. Uh, brought to the forefront that's largely true well i am so happy that you had the time to spend with us is there anything else that that you've got coming up regarding uh washington Immortal, washington's immortals we mentioned that you'll be the the keynote speaker at the grand opening of the american revolutionary museum uh, this
1: is in yorktown yes yeah. uh, this is the uh, the old Yorktown Victory Center has been repurposed and they've added on to it, uh, you know, many uh, thousands of square feet, and uh, there's literally you know uh, thousands of artifacts down there to tell the story of the American Revolution. Uh, yeah, I've been chosen uh, for the honor to be the, the keynote speaker for the day that Maryland ratified the Constitution. It's going to be on Wednesday, the 29th, and of March 29th, and uh, then I'm uh, then I've got a, a, a number of other uh, book signings that are kind of going on uh, through the summer and uh, in spring. And, but, um, you know, largely I've been working away. My mind has been in the 20th, early 20th century, and I've been working on a book on World War One, which I can't get into all the details on, but that's it's something that I've been um, working on for, for several years, Beginning in 2010 or when I went to France with the 5th Marine Regiment. It had been the first time that the 5th Marines had returned to France since World War I, 1918, 1917, I should say. And uh, the regiment returned with a core group of about 50 or uh, 60, 70 men. And we went back to the front and we went to Belleau Wood, which is a fabled... A legendary battle of the Marine Corps, where they stopped a German offensive that was that was driving towards Paris in the summer of 1918.
0: Wow! Well, now uh, naturally we'll have links that people can get uh, Washington's Immortals on Amazon. Once you get there, you can decide you want hardback paper. Oh, I, I got to mention audio.
1: one more thing. Oh, okay, it's, it's the book is featured at... Uh, and the new release table at Barnes and Noble for paperback, and uh, that that's that's going on nationwide uh, in all Barnes and Noble stores.
0: And people can go to PatrickKO'Donnell.com if they want want to you know look into. I know they can look at them on Amazon, uh, but if they want to look into some other stuff, they can. Um, we were one is one of my favorites of your books, but they just continue to get better. I think we've had you on for Dog Company for first seals uh, and now for this one uh, unless there's one I'm forgetting because you tend to write a lot of books uh, and uh, they just get better and better and better along the way. I I love coming on your show. Tom, you're one of the best. All right. Well, thanks for being here. And uh, for those of you listening, I guess this will be up on Tuesday, the 28th. If you have time, or a credit card and can get on a plane, go to Yorktown for the, the ceremony on the 29th. Three, two, one, one. You're listening to The Tom Gully Show. am. Just send an email to tom at thetomgullyshow.com. Like to thank Patrick K. O'Donnell for being on the show again. You can get any of his books on Amazon, or you could also visit patrickkodonnell.com to learn even more about this incredible author and his books. If you're into military history, he's a historian without parallel. But if you're just into nonfiction, you'll find him a writer of great skill and a masterful storyteller. Get one of his books today or go hear him speak somewhere. You can also probably keep your eyes peeled on C-SPAN and various other legit historical literary outlets. You know, PatrickKODonald.com. Folks, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this on your various Facebook pages. Trying to spread the word means trying to spread our little show here We'd appreciate it if you'd like the Tom Gully Show, not me, but the show on Facebook, too, if the mood strikes you. And, of course, there's always the TomGullyShow.com. That's where you can find everything about the show. There's the Tom Gully Show store, which is still not open again. Yeah, got to gotta, gotta get, get that done because I know a lot of you are dying to have hats with my logo on it. And we also encourage you to subscribe on iTunes for free because if it's free, it's for me. Follow us on Twitter at AtomicPaluka as well, so I can increase my clout and cred ratings. Because if I get enough points, we're all gonna go to the aces. And congratulations to those of you who know what movie that's from. That's gonna do it for tonight. I'm out of here. I gotta go talk to some people. I'll talk to you much later. Each night, Jay Johnson takes us in with the truth wagon. Go to jjohnsonmusic.com, and each night we take you out with Russell Alexander and the Hitman Blues Band. Go to hitmanbluesband.com, and if you go to hitmanbluesband.net, you can sign up for their email and get a bunch of free blues songs. You will be glad we told you about that. You'll be glad you did it, too, if you do it, because then you can say you did it, and uh, because that's how we roll. And we will see you next time.
2: Well, the bucket can lift a twig For a dog a snuffin' big But he don't want to And the dog can't grab a cat Or a coon can do all that But he don't want to And I dream of you at night While you hold your baby tight But he don't want you You can
1: see it in his eyes From the way he tells you lies He don't want you
2: He stays at work too long And you beg him to come home But he don't want to